can't tell if the chemistry is good by looking at it. It wasn't clear yesterday. For the last time, the saltwater pool is a chlorine pool. This is the Talking Pools podcast with pool pros from every region in the country. If it happens in a pool, you'll hear about it here. Everything from tips and hacks to the latest tricks and trends, breaking news. We lay it on the line. We tell it like it is because we think you deserve to know. Hey everybody, it is Rudy Stankowitz with Aquatic Facility Training and Consultants, also with the Talking Pools Podcast, and it is Thursday, which means it's time to talk CPO, and we have a good episode coming up for you. We're going to be talking about the people that make the rules, that make the laws for the swimming pool industry. This is not a section that you have to master, but I'll tell you what, it is a good idea to know where these things come from, and you should at least have some familiarization with the organizations. Speaking about CPO classes, just came off of a great one. I was up in Valdosta teaching at Wild Adventures Theme Park. If you're not familiar with the place, that is the theme park they used in the movie Zombieland with Woody Harrelson and Emma Stone maybe a decade ago. So as you're walking around, it's kind of neat because you recognize some of the different attractions that they did use in the film. On top of that, they do have a full water park, which means that we get to crawl in and out of those pump rooms. We get to see how these things operate, different water park attractions that you might not get a chance to see otherwise anywhere in your pool career. On top of that... They also have animal enclosures, which is mad cool because we actually use the alligator enclosure for a lot of the things we do in my CPO class. As far as a pump room tour, yes, we tour the pump rooms of the water attractions as well. But touring the gator enclosure pump room is kind of neat, and it's kind of cool to see on the faces of the students as we walk into this room that everything they use there is just regular swimming pool equipment. Uh, cat controller, they have... AccuTabs, they're using CalHypo tablets, they have a sand filter, all the different things in there. And yes, we do also use that gator enclosure for the water test that we conduct in the CPO class. And these people, this keeper of this enclosure, check this out, 40 to 50 gators, all three to four foot in length, eating, pooping, peeing, and fornicating in this water. And we tested it. And the results will blow your mind. Free chlorine, 1.0 which is normal for a gator enclosure. They want to keep the bacteria and the pathogens to a minimum, so that actually helps with the gator's health. So a free chlorine level of one part per million, combined chlorine zero parts per million, pH at 7.6, total alkalinity at 80 parts per million. Calcium hardness was a little bit low for our standards. They came in at 120 parts per million, but then we went on to a phosphate test, 1,000 parts per billion. I know that sounds high, but considering what goes on in that body of water, 1,000 parts per million is pretty damn good. I mean, even with swimming pools, we don't worry about a phosphate level until it's over 500 parts per billion. I know there's some folks that don't worry about it at all, but 1,000 parts per billion, these keepers, they are on top of it. So if you're interested in taking one of my CPO classes, go to my website, cpoclass.com, click on the CPO certification schedule tab. There you'll have your choice of either in-person or virtual classes. So yes, you can take my classes from anywhere in the world. 
And they're always West Coast friendly as far as the times go. We start our classes at 11 a.m. Eastern, which makes it easy for everybody to get in and out without having to sit in class at four or five o'clock in the morning. If you want to do some practice stuff, guess what? I got that there for you also. CPOclass.com is my website. Go to the CPO practice test tab. There you'll have flashcards, some different training materials that you can utilize, and you'll even have a practice test so you can test your skills. We'll be right back in a minute. We're going to dive into the meat of regulations and guidelines. Until then, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. To CPO Thursdays. Again, I'm Rudy Stankowitz, and today it's regulations and guidelines, laws, rules, all that stuff. Like I said, this is not a section that you have to master, but you should have a familiarization with each of these organizations and what they do for the swimming pool industry. So sit back, enjoy your coffee, let me in here for 20 minutes, and let's talk about the folks that make the laws that make the pool world go round. I'm sure you already have at least a little bit of a familiarization with the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, and what they do. Their big concern is the environment, the impact of the environment on the health of humans, and then also on critters. These are the folks who will fine you if you drain chlorinated water into a storm drain because of its impact on the environment. So we have to take a look at those things. So we understand that. They have a huge, huge impact on what we do. The same folks are the reason why we have to have separation tanks if you have diatomaceous earth systems, because diatomaceous earth will harm fish and other wildlife. So that does need to be collected in a separation tank. Those are usually just a cartridge filter where there's no element inside of it, but instead they use a bag filter that catches the diatomaceous earth, giving you the opportunity to dispose of it in a means in accordance with your local sanitation department. When you backwash, you take the bag out, it's full of DE, you bag it, you handle it however your local sanitation department tells you to, however they want you to prepare that for them for pickup. Nothing can be drained into a storm drain. Nothing from the pool. And if they do come out, and it's usually because somebody complained, that's where that happens, right? So you're draining a pool partially, completely, even during a vac to waste. It's pouring down the driveway out into the street. One of the neighbors sees it. They call the local EPA office. They send somebody out. They'll check that water chemistry. If that water going into that storm drain has a chlorine level in it, you're going to get a fine. Hopefully, you just get a warning, but ultimately, you could end up with a fine. Same thing with diatomaceous earth. If you're backwashing into your driveway and it runs down the street into a storm drain, that could be problematic for you. The EPA does a lot with the maximum acceptable levels of the chemicals we use as far as safe drinking water guidelines. That's what we typically follow in the swimming pool industry. So all of these maximum acceptable levels you see, that's what that's based off of. 
For example, if you're using a copper algicide, we know our maximum allowed copper level in a swimming pool is one part per million. The EPA's maximum acceptable copper level in drinking water happens to be 1.3 parts per million. Silver, we have a maximum level of 0.1 parts per million, you know, and the list goes on and on up to and including chlorine. And this is where this is going to get a little bit tricky because you may see some changes here in the future. We know that you're permitted in a public pool to maintain a chlorine level in an outdoor pool without cyanuric acid of one part per million to 10 parts per million. They use this same product in water treatment. And because they use it in water treatment, the EPA requires that there's a label on the bucket. And the EPA's guidelines for safe drinking water is one to four parts per million. And because... That maximum acceptable level is on the bucket, on the bucket of tablets, on the chemical that you use. That makes it the law for swimming pool use of that product. This federal law of a maximum acceptable chlorine level in swimming pools of four parts per million does come up from time to time in the meetings for the Council for the Model Aquatic Health Code, which is the swimming pool guideline put out by the CDC that a lot of your health department codes utilize and adopt. We'll talk about more about that in a moment coming up. But every time the Model Aquatic Health Code comes up for a vote, which is once every three years, this is the topic of in-depth conversation because do we put that maximum acceptable level of four parts per million into the Model Aquatic Health Code and then have your public health departments adopt that as well? At this point, it's the law. However, We do understand that this is not drinking water. People do not drink copious amounts of pool water. So the CDC is working with the EPA to differentiate drinking water from swimming pools, at least in the case of chlorine. And we'll talk about that more coming up when we discuss the CDC. S-A-R-A, Title III, that's Sarah Title III, that comes down to the Emergency Planning and Community Right to Know Act. This is deals a lot. You'll hear a lot about this when people are talking about Superfund sites, scary stuff. And we do have chemicals that fall under these guidelines as far as planning efforts at both state and local levels. Some of the chemicals that fall under SARA Title III, aluminum sulfate, ammonia, calcium hypochlorite, chlorine gas, hydrogen peroxide, muriatic acid, sodium bisulfate, sodium hypochlorite. They actually limit the storage on some of these items and some of the maximum amounts that you can have on hand are as little as 100 pounds. We all know who OSHA is and it's always very interesting when I bring up OSHA in class. Somebody comes back and says they fine you, they shut you down, things along those lines. But, you know, their main purpose is your protection. They want you to be safe. They want you to not be exposed to dangerous situations or hazardous chemicals. And that's their place in this industry. We mentioned the SDS sheets in the last episode, and I said that we had to keep a copy of the SDS sheets on site for a period of no less than 30 years from the last time we use it. The reason they want you to do that is because they want you to have some type of documentation of what chemicals employees have been exposed to that workers have been exposed to at that facility, and 30 years is the guideline. So we're keeping the SDS sheets just simply as a record of the chemicals that the employees were exposed to. 
A lot of great information on those SDS sheets. If you, you should read the SDS sheet for every chemical that you have before you put it on the truck. You should make sure that your employees, your team members are familiar with the SDS sheets of every chemical that you'll be using before you put those items onto your vehicle or bring them into your facility. That includes looking at the personal protective equipment that the SDS sheet recommends. Make sure you have that stuff. It usually comes down to only about four or five different items that is common throughout all of the SDS sheets. So if you have those and you're inspecting them on a regular basis to make sure they look like they're in good shape, I always used to make sure that they looked like they were also being used pool service employees go out there on their own in the fields. You don't really have eyes on them. So every now and then I would take their personal protective equipment and make sure it looks like the gloves were being used, that the mask was being put on, things along those lines. It's for their safety. I know, you know what? We're tired of wearing masks, but things like diatomaceous earth or silica sand, it's an inhalation risk. It can damage your lungs. We don't want to do that. So do make sure that you have those different items. Read through the information. You'll find what the ingredient of that product is, what to do if the product is spilled, how to clean it up, what personal protective equipment you should wear, what to do if you get it in your eye, what to do if you ingest it, what it happens if you pour it on bunny rabbits. People have the right to know what chemicals they're handling and what possible exposure hazards to that chemical exist. That's the information that's in the SDS sheet. So do make sure that you go through those with your team before you put the item onto the vehicle. If you're a service professional, same thing before you bring it into your facility. And if you are a service professional, you should provide the facilities that you take care of on your route with copies of the SDS sheets for the different chemicals that you bring onto their property. Not just the chemicals that you use in their pool, but the different things that you bring onto their property because they have a right to know what you're using as well. The Consumer Product Safety Commission is not typically known as a regulation-making authority. And to tell you the truth, they hadn't been for the longest period of time. Their job there was to protect people from products that could be hazardous, products that could be dangerous. So that was their main function. They wanted to make sure that the products going out into the market did not pose any kind of a risk for fire, injury, anything along those lines. With the creation of the Virginia Graham-Baker Act, the Consumer Product Safety Commission had been empowered to oversee and enforce this rule. Not just a rule. In fact, the Virginia Graham-Baker Act was the first federal pool code. Whether you have a public pool code in your state or not, you still have to be compliant to the Virginia Graham-Baker Act, and the Consumer Product Safety Commission can go out and inspect pools if they wish. They are tasked with enforcing this. So that's one of their roles in the industry, but you'll also see from time to time that they do recall certain items that are put out into the market. Some of the different guidelines that we get from the Consumer Product Safety Commission that weren't necessarily a law but were a suggestion that your health department adopted into law was your barrier requirements. So, yes, they're responsible for that as well. So the fact that your barrier has to be 48 inches high, the gate has to be self-closing, self-latching, height of the latch, 54 inches, even the part where the bars will not allow the passage of a four-inch sphere, that all came from the Consumer Product Safety Commission, and it was actually set up for residential use. These were the guidelines for homes. So they looked at it. They said, this is good. They brought it in. They made it part of the pool code, and now that's where your barrier requirements come from. So understand that the Consumer Product Safety Commission, although they only enforce the Virginia Graham-Baker Act, they are responsible still indirectly for a lot of the laws that apply 
for what you do in the day-to-day. DOJ, Department of Justice, one of their big contributions to the swimming pool industry is the handicapped access requirements that we have at facilities. So as far as who has to comply and who does not, the DOJ's law on handicapped access pertains only to those facilities considered to be transient. Transient facility means that nobody lives there. It's not their home. Places like hotels, campgrounds, parks, things along those lines have to comply. The five different methods that have been approved as acceptable handicapped access is the lift, handicapped access stairs, transfer wall transfer system, or a ramp. And these fall under the Americans with Disability Act. As far as these handicapped access requirements go, they pertain only to transient facilities. What's a transient facility? That's a facility that nobody lives at. So hotels, campgrounds, Parks Department, things along those lines. Nobody lives there, but people come and enjoy the pools and then they leave. Even if somebody's in the hotel for a long time, it doesn't mean they live there. Non-transient facilities, that means at least some element of home or ownership exists. For example, an HOA is non-transient. Apartment complex is non-transient. Condominiums, non-transient. They do not need to have handicapped access for their patrons for the people that live at those facilities, because that's their home. It w- They could do it if they wanted to. They could do it to be nice, but there is no law requiring it. This is not your health department's responsibility. The DOJ oversees this entirely. When are they going to come out to do the inspections? Usually only after somebody complains. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have it. Keep in mind, I mean, one, it's the law. Two, it's the right thing to do. But you do also have people out there that are making a lot of money on this. There's a fellow that lives up near Atlanta, also one in St. Augustine, and you can Google these things if you like. They're making some cash on this. What they're doing is they wake up in the morning, and these are legitimately handicapped folks, and they drive to the nearest facility in their town. They usually don't even leave their town. They drive to the nearest facility, get out of their vehicle, go up to the fence for the pool area, and peer through. If they see a lift or some form of handicapped access, all good to go. They get back into their vehicle and drive away. If they do not see a lift, they call DOJ and complain, which means when they come out and inspect it and you don't have the lift, you're going to get a fine. And then they also file a discrimination lawsuit. Even though they had no plan of ever actually getting into that pool at your facility, they're filing this lawsuit. And guess what? They're winning. The CDC is responsible for a tremendous amount of the guidelines that we utilize in the swimming pool industry, and some of these have also been accepted as code by your local or state health departments. Some of the guidelines they've put out that pertain to us are vomit and blood contamination of pool water, cleaning up bodily fluid spills on pool surfaces, and then, of course, the one that you're familiar with is the fecal incident response guidelines. Remember my poem, if it's poo, it's two, if it's runny, it's 20. But the CDC actually is one of those organizations that does have a little bit of a sense of humor because you can go into Google right now, go into your search engine and type in CDC space zombies, and you'll actually come to a page on a U.S. government website for the CDC that gives you step-by-step instructions on what to do in case of a zombie attack. Try it. Wait till the podcast is over, but look it up. Pretty interesting. But you know what? It actually is set up to bring attention to the fact that people need to have emergency response plans in place. And for decades, people were ignoring that initiative. So with the zombie fad that's been going on since The Walking Dead came about, the CDC jumped on the bandwagon and decided to address zombies instead of hurricanes. And guess what? 
People are now buying emergency prep kits, coming up with plans, because zombies are a big thing. The other thing the CDC has in place that you should check out, that you should pay attention to, is the Model Aquatic Health Code. They have a council for the Model Aquatic Health Code that you can belong to. I'm a member. This way you get to actually take part in this guideline that was developed. Basically what it is is a giant health department code with tons of research-based science involved that state health departments can use when they need to find information to update their own their own public pool codes. That's what that's in place for. So the homework's already been done. They don't need to start from scratch. They don't need to figure it out on their own. They can take a look at this model aquatic health code and pull what they need from that and adopt it into its code. And that's a beautiful thing because you can be a part of it. All you have to do is join the Council for the Model Aquatic Health Code and you can actually have a say. You get to vote on some of the different things that affect the industry that we're in. And personally, I don't see why somebody wouldn't want to do that. It's our industry. We should have a say in what goes on. You want to have your say. If you weren't familiar with the World Health Organization prior to COVID, you definitely are now because they've been in the news nonstop since that pandemic began. This organization looks at biological hazards that affect people worldwide. There's a lot of great information that comes from these scientists all over the world. They do meet periodically and they discuss microbiological hazards that affect the planet. They come up with plans. They come up with methods to treat they also put out the minutes of their meetings in book form. They are expensive books, but I'll tell you what, they are easy reads. There's not a lot of techno babble. So if you are interested in learning more about some of the different areas that affect swimming pools, grab some of those books. Check them out. There's a lot of great information there as well. So again, that's the WHO, the World Health Organization, and their gig is Biological Hazards. And they do all have a lot of guidelines that are geared toward aquatic facilities and pool care. So check it out. So there's a couple more that I wanted to go through, but I think this is a good stopping point from now. I don't want this to go on and on for hours. Like I said, this is not a section that you have to master, but you should have a familiarization with each of these organizations and what they do bring to the swimming pool industry and how this affects your life on the day-to-day -day out there, whether you're servicing pools or working at a facility and taking care of a pool on site. So... I will pick back up with this one next week, where one of the organizations we talk about is going to be DOT, the Department of Transportation. And in that conversation, I will share with you some of the load limits that you're permitted to have in the back of a swimming pool service truck, because I tell you what, it's a lot less than you think you're allowed to have. And that should be of a concern. Well, we'll get into it next week, but tune back in. I'll go through it all with you then. Until then, if you do need a CPO certification class, go to my website, cpoclass.com. Click on the CPO certification schedule tab. There you will have choices of either in-person or virtual classes that you can attend to earn your certification. If you just want some practice to get up to speed, to increase your knowledge, or to prepare for a CPO certification class, same website, cpoclass.com. Click on the tab that says CPO practice test, and there you'll have flashcards, different exercises, a practice test, some uh, other training materials that you can go through, and just a bunch of really great stuff right there. I'm Rudy Stankowitz. Until next Thursday, you guys have a kick-ass week. Enjoy your weekend. Be good. Be safe.
I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you for listening today. I'm hoping you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed putting it together for you. Listen, it's been a couple of wacky, crazy, screwed up years from pandemic to Poolmageddon. I just want you to know that we are all in this together. If there's anything that we can do for you, send me an email at talkingpools at gmail.com. Again, that's talkingpools at gmail.com. We're here. This is your podcast. We are the Pool People's Podcast of the Pool People for the Pool People by the Pool People's Podcast. This one is about you. So thank you for tuning in and listening. Do me a favor. Click subscribe before you go. That way you don't miss an episode. 